1: To another episode of Out of the Blank podcast. Deborah, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening?
0: Hi, I'm Deborah Ramsey. Um, I'm a lecturer in film and television at Exeter University in England, and my research specialism is in war and media.
1: So, how did you get interested in studying war and media?
0: I guess some of it comes from my background. Um, I don't know if you can hear in my accent. I'm not uh, from the UK, I'm from South Africa. Um, I grew up during apartheid era, South Africa, at a time when the media were pretty strictly controlled, especially television. I went to a really liberal university, and I think that was one of the first times when I was at that university that I started really realising just how controlled the media were, because I was seeing things happening on campus, there were protests against apartheid, And when I saw those protests reported on television, I realized, hang on, something's not right here because what they're saying didn't happen. I didn't see that happen. So I was doing a degree in um, a media subject. I was doing a a performance degree and we were studying media at the time. And it just really woke me up to the fact of what happens when um, you're living in a country where there isn't freedom for the media and how the media can construct a, a version of reality that suits a particular ideological position um, and what that does to people. So ever since then, I've been really passionate about being able to understand and decode what media say, because really, when you think about it, everything is mediated, everything. Everything we all our information comes through some form of media, even language is a form of medium. So. Understanding the mechanisms through which uh, media operates, how they interact with us is really, really important to me. And all of those kind of relationships really get thrown into sharp relief during times of conflict, not necessarily outright war, but whenever there's conflict of some kind, it, all of those kinds of things come into play.
1: I think the term media captures like a pretty good stereotype that I think everyone talks about or either knows about, but I don't know if people know how far it really goes. Like to me, I'm like, I'm like, that's a, that. even saying that sounded really conspiratorial but it's not really necessarily I mean we know about like in the 70s the FBI created a fake magazine and was working with the media during Operation Mockingbird but this fake magazine was called I think the Rational Observer and it was loaded on college campuses and it was <laughs> like <a>
0: fabulous title <laughs> I know but
1: any they always have good like Operation Mockingbird like I don't know where they pull that name from but if you look up that that is a real operation that was talking about having um, covert assets in the media to be able to pitch Certain stories. And I've kind of dived down the whole discussion of journalism. But when we talk about knowing how far it really goes, I mean, creating a fake magazine and telling people there's nothing going on in Vietnam just so people will stop trying to spark up animosity about why are we over there and asking real questions of like, should we be over there? Like, that's, I mean, historically documented so it's like when it comes to i guess reporting the story or what you started to notice did you notice that they were leaving out details or creating events that necessarily didn't happen to get people like to turn against it because i started noticing that with like protesters like there's some protest movements out there but they immediately start to become like pitched on the media as like violent or like 100% demonize this. And I'm like, is it like that, though? Because everyone else from another country tells me to really examine American media to just step outside and look at another country's version of our media. And you get like the real story.
0: Yeah, oh, there's a a couple of complicated things there, I guess. Um, In South Africa, bearing in mind, we're talking a very different kind of regime to the one that's operating in the States. So this is not quite the same kinds of, for example, in South Africa, at that stage, the uh, television was uh, the SABC, the South African Broadcasting Corporation, was very much a state controlled institution. So it was predisposed to really um, supporting the activities of the state, which at that time, was pretty much involved in repressing the majority of the population, everyone who, who who wasn't white. So, in terms of what you're asking, there were. It's not just leaving stuff out; it's a whole raft of things. Some of them really subtle. So, for example, at that stage, if there was some kind of road accident in which people were killed, the language around that news report would be something along the lines of. Um, Joe Bloggs was killed in a horrific accident on this 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 freeway and seven blacks so black people weren't named um Nelson Mandela I don't think I ever saw Nelson Mandela on television until he was freed from uh prison uh the the whole uh attempt the the whole freedom Uh, the whole attempt by the ANC to gain freedom and liberation in South Africa and other organizations as well, not just the ANC, was completely left out of media entirely. The ANC was pitched as a terrorist organization uh, and always referred to as terrorists. So there was a sense that everything, there was the, the news to try and maintain the sense that everything was okay. Whereas in Uh, And Vietnam is an interesting case in the States because in actual fact, the Vietnam War at the beginning, uh, correspondents had unprecedented freedom and support to get to Vietnam and to cover this conflict in the hope that by supporting them, they would then show a favorable uh, favorable idea of how the war was progressing. But of course, as we know, they started reporting on things that were happening that the government wasn't quite happy with. So that control was not taken away, but it, it, it created a really complex situation where there isn't that much control being exerted over the news, but certainly the news media in the States at that time are still trying to present a really, an idea of a conflict that is progressing in a controlled and manageable way until eventually after the Tet Offensive that falls to pieces and they can no longer do that anymore. And you start to get the sense of things going wrong.
1: The example I kind of want to relate to, it's not exactly the same, but it's kind of like how we labeled uh, terrorists, and everyone kind of gets a picture of a certain ethnicity in their head, and that happened a lot after 9-11, wrongfully so. And I I mean, I've done the conversations into studying Islam or talking to people who really changed my perspective on it, but it's kind of like, uh, this is a more recent example, but with China, when you criticize the Chinese government people get like, you can't. is that Asian hate? It's like, no, no, it's okay to criticize the Chinese government. Same reason it's okay to criticize the Israeli government. It's not the people. It's the government. It's systems and power that tend to lean that way. And if we take the example um, with the American media, for instance, during the Vietnam War, sending people over there, the whole point of that with media reporters, and there's announcement statements you can find, which is about like, I mean, take these media people out there. Don't get them killed, but show them what's going on over here. And you send those pictures back home and you play those, and then more people have moral support toward the army or the military where there's a funny statement is there was so much marijuana usage and a bunch of stuff going on you can find photos of that that they literally had to make it like a a project which was like literally about the way you get back home is if you pee clean you have to pee clean and these soldiers were like i want to get home but at the same time i need like these things that we've been using for the longest time and media started getting pictures of those and they made a high ban on those they made sure that nobody was using those on the fields but because those photos were going back home and then people realized wait a minute what's going on you showed me a minute ago of a guy with his arm missing and now you're We're seeing a person smoking a marijuana joint out of a, you know, a rifle or something like that. And it was like, yeah, well, it's in the beginning, it was about supporting the war and showing you what they're dealing with. So you'll have more courageous support towards the Vietnam War. And then people kind of started realizing, hey, we still have questions you're not answering. And does that rely on media or does that rely on government to take care of that? Because that relationship is a tricky, tricky slope.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of relationships involved in what you've just said, because it's relationships of the government to the military, the military to the media, the media to the government and the military, and then you've got the people as well. And I think one of the interesting things about Vietnam is that for me, it's a turning point where correspondence it has it 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 has already happened in previous conflicts, but correspondents really start to feel that they have a moral responsibility to convey what's really happening in the conflict and to show people in the states how terrible it it is, so they start kind of going off um off script, I suppose and doing the kinds of things you're talking about, and then of course, it gets complex in terms of which of those. Images make it into um, mainstream media in the u s. So the I can't remember the name of the newspaper, for example, who first um, published the photograph that famous photograph called Napalm Girl of the little girl running um with, but they had a huge debate around whether or not they should show that because of a whole raft of issues not necessarily because of what they felt the the government was doing or that they or fearing repara- um that the government would come down on them but because of the ethical issues in photo- in showing an image of a young girl naked and she actually said afterwards she that was one of the things that really shocked her that they they showed that to to people in the states but then you get into the tri- i know that you're interested in in kind of how the power of media but again vietnam is a great example because there is very often the the general perception is um those kind of images really created um opposition to the war and in actual fact the 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 actual sh- relationship between the rise of opposition to the war and what was being shown in television and in newspapers is a little bit more nuanced than that and some in fact for example after the Tet offensive studies show that although people were seeing more violent imagery than ever before especially on television of the war actually that resulted in increased support for the war so it took a little while for for those kinds of things to shift and i think one of the things that we need to be careful of in talking about the power of media is it's not always universally received in the same way. It's not universally understood in the same way. And very often it can be unpredictable in terms of how people react.
1: Do you think that, like, if I could ask you maybe where you would probably focus more, where maybe you're drawn towards more when it comes to do you think that it should rely on journalists? Do you think there should be a focus there, correcting the problem? Not saying that journalists are doing bad reporting, but also there's not really, I mean, the power of journalistic integrity. Like, I hate to say, like, that when we say media is captured, I kind of look at like journalists don't really have an obligation or really, uh, incentive to report on stories that might have a relationship with whoever that like if you're reporting it's good to choose a side sadly to say it but if you choose left or right at this point i mean you're going to get a platform you're going to get so much but if you talk trash on both you're kind of going to be by yourself in that boat um, and if you want to report a story, let's say, about airplanes and the companies, like, hey, we have a relationship with this, we can't have you report that. That's a real example. But then now, do you care about the story or do you care about your job and your livelihood and then your family? And then that brings in, I mean, a big moral debate, which I don't blame the journalists for saying no thanks and then just going right into the story that they want to do or if they want to protect their family, that's fine. Or do you think that it's reliance on more of the media's relationship with the people? Because that's also an area that I'm kind of concerned about, which is the way that we're received a story, the way that it can – I wouldn't say brainwash us, but in a sense brainwashing us to either have undying support for whatever we're seeing in the way that it's displayed or we hear something and it doesn't ring into our ears. Um, And the only example I have of this right now is that there's a book by Richard Helms, a CIA director and uh he's there's a rough draft that does not match the final draft and to me it's just good wordplay and in the rough draft he says through my time as director we've done over a thousand something covert operations that's like political assassinations that's regime change that's propaganda that's so much stuff and then in his final copy the guy changed it the ghostwriter to a couple dozen i'm like look a thousand something operations to a couple dozen, that is still a form of media, but it's like that wordplay is so dangerous on the public's perception because someone reading that is going to have a different impact than what maybe the real exact number or close to the exact number might be, where the importance has gone out of that. A couple dozen, I read that, I flip the page. I don't even think twice about it. So if I gave you a couple options, and if you had another one that you could think of where you were more drawn towards um whether it's media's relationship with the government whether it's media's relationship with the people whether it's media integrity journalistic integrity which one would you pick well I'm sorry. um
0: no don't don't say sorry that's a, a an interesting kind of way to approach it I, I, I,
1: we're going to hit them all at some point i just want to where do you want to start first
0: <laughs> okay so i suppose first of all we should narrow it down a bit so, if you're saying media, are we talking, uh, what, what countries' media are we talking? Because remember, each, each country has its own, di- there are different relationships between all of those things in every country. So, if you're talking about the states in particular, is that who we're talking about? We could yeah. talk
1: about the states, is what I know more about, but I'm more than happy of admitting I don't know something. So, if you would like to focus on another country. <laughs> well,
0: me please, too. Please, I'll yeah. also admit if I don't know something, trust me, I will. Um, so, and also time periods, right? Because if we're talking Vietnam War, we're talking World War II, Each of these time periods, uh, there are, there are different relationships at work and different forms of media. If we're talking current, um, the the current situation, I mean, that is just so complex because all of those relationships have been changed by the presence of digital technology and the way in which. We're now no longer just media consumers. We're media producers. We get involved in in producing news about war in all kinds of ways, um, and and not just you know making films, tweeting whatever it is, Instagramming whatever it is. Um, so
1: let's stay in the American World War and let's try more the sixties and seventies because I think even in the sixties and seventies that branches out to a lot of connections with Latin American countries as well to Radio Free Europe and things of that sort.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah, again, we see a very different kind of relationship. Um, The Vietnam War is really unique because, and there there hasn't been another war that has been covered in the same way as the Vietnam War because of the supposed repercussions of that coverage. So the Vietnam War is really a a great moment in which things change. the government and the military become alarmed about how the media are reporting the war. So ever since then, there have been different, uh, different responsibilities put in place. But at the time, it really is a kind of free-for-all. So you have not just accredited photographers, but people going out there just to try and make their name as correspondents and uh, journalists and photographers, just trying to get as much as they... And of course, the interesting thing about the Vietnam War, again, is that in that a lot of them, in terms of talking about sides, a lot of them are not representing what the North Vietnamese side at all. And I think that's in terms of the way in which Vietnam is understood in the States, um, that has only started to change recently because it's always been about the experience of the war from the American perspective. And you get no idea of what why what what the North Vietnamese were fighting for and why they were there, so in well they terms never of let science, you talk about it. Right? They ne- they no. never
1: let you, you. I couldn't talk to it to my grandfather. I only started to realize deep connections with it when I started talking about my podcast. And someone that I talked to about Vietnam and Coca Cola, surprisingly, Coca Cola, the same company that's Coca Cola, there's an offset of that company that also helped produce Agent Orange, which is nuts to me. And it sounds crazy, but the connections with this, and he goes into explaining all the different types of Agent Orange, there's like multiple different number code systems and all that. But I asked my grandpa, I was like, why is it always we're a Coke family? Like that's, and he served in the Vietnam War. Coke helped support the troops and did all of that so that was strictly coke in the family it was like this weird connection of like that's interesting that's interesting but it's like something you could never talk about in any vietnam movie you ever watched. you don't feel good you don't feel bad you're just like i don't ever want to talk about this to anyone that actually was there because so just it's like a drop the topic type deal so then it's like how do we learn and i think that's when you start seeing people asking questions now and the tide's kind of changing of like we're getting reporters that go over there that hear a whole different side of things and obviously you can try and balance those out a little bit too but some of their stuff that they're talking about isn't necessarily like america needs to die or anything like that it's just like this is what happened like i was in a house with my family and somebody dropped a napalm thing and nobody cared and it was like okay now you're starting to get the empathy factor for the people that were over there and you realize that oh we might have been sales pitched and kind of diluted a message because history is written by the winner
0: Yeah, and I mean, to a degree, it's understandable, right? Because when you're in a war, you're not really interested in portraying the other side. You're you're not. But, uh, and this gets us on, I think, to another relationship that we haven't really mentioned, because it's not just about news media, right? It's, and this is one of the things I'm particularly interested in. We don't only understand conflict through news media. We understand it through the Vietnam Movies we watch, we understand it through the documentaries we see on television. It, it's not just all the the series that we see on television. There are a couple of series that drama series that have been made about the Vietnam War on TV, and the same is true, obviously, about World War II. A lot of our understanding of those wars comes from fictional media, not just factual media. And in the Vietnam War, so the America didn't make films about the Vietnam War while they were in it. The only film that came out about the Vietnam War while it was ongoing was John Wayne's The Green Berets. So it's only in the 1980s that directors start making, like Oliver Stone, start making films about the war in Vietnam. And at that point, you're out of the war, right? So you you could think, right, well, we could start to think about what was going on with the other side. But instead, what you get in the films of Vietnam is this intense focus on the American soldier. The American soldier becomes the primary victim of that war in those films. And I get that again, it's understandable because veterans came back incredibly traumatized um, to a difficult situation in the States. So I get why that is, but at the same time, it's created, I think, a perception of the war that is very much about again, it's about the American experience of soldiers going through trauma. And uh, there's often a, a narrative that is very much about the male psyche and uh male development and, and male emotions. Rather than understanding this war is a hugely complex phenomenon in which, as you rightly point out, there were any number of victims that had nothing to do with with either either side but were just caught in the middle of it and ended up having their whole lives destroyed you know the cambodia is still trying to recover from the damage that things like agent orange did and from the the huge bombardment that it underwent at the time and that's something we don't talk about either is the environmental legacy of these wars
1: or even the number of lawsuits from family members that were born with a genetic defects and they're trying to sue to get rights or trying to get money um to be able to help with their condition and the government's like you can't prove that you got that from agent orange which is to me is just ridiculous like the government spends so much money a year where it's like you can't just offer what uh, less than a million dollars would get set them for the rest of their life like you don't ever have to worry about dealing with a lawsuit or anything nope that's not how it works um But when it comes to the propaganda message, I would say in Vietnam, do you think it's interesting that they just focus on, I mean, it's good advertising, but they focus on the male psyche. They focus on PTSD, which I mean, I think when you watch a war film, you get that as your ending message. And you're kind of only really only remember like, oh my God, like I've heard so many conversations about films showing PTSD or shell shock. And I've always heard about it when I was a kid. But then if you really kind of, dissect the film a little bit more which you typically do when you're in film studies or something because you're now looking for those things that an average viewer might just skip over i mean you kind of see like it really focuses on the trooper but what about a vietnam war that focuses on the military guy who has a cigar in his mouth who's just saying yeah send a thousand more i don't care like What about that? Like, I mean, we never see that really in a Vietnam War movie. We see the trenches. We see – usually it's gray a lot of times. not the black and white style of film, but I mean like just the – from all the mass explosions, everything just seems gray. They always shoot it in that type of direction, and they really emphasize what these troops go through. It's like, well, you're not hating the troops for protesting the Vietnam War. What you're hating is the fact that we have to be over there in the first place and family members have to be lost, but that message doesn't stick. That message is immediately, these people are firing at somebody, and they're the enemy, so it's okay. It's like, okay, I get that. But boil it back down to we're all human beings, right? They're looking at you the same exact way. And then it becomes sides again, and it's, you have to choose a side. And that's a really hard thing to do because you have people that will have undying loyalty to their military always.
0: Of course. But yeah.
1: because also their family member might have died. In the military. So you saying something that might be opposing that is now crapping on their parents or grandparents legacy. And now they have to fight you. And I hate to say it like that, but that's typically how arguments and things boil down to. But then, I mean, you can the best example would be Vietnam War uh, survivors, veterans, Uh, when they talk about their experience, some undying loyalty. A lot of them communist, surprisingly, have really anti-government views when they get out, whether they're – and it's just because maybe they lost a leg or something. But they went over there, and they realized what the hell are we doing over here, and the public doesn't know, and they start protesting, which to me it's like what do you do as a viewer? Do we stop Vietnam War movies in general? Do they have an important part to our culture? Does any war movie really do? Should we just make it fantasy? I mean these are all questions you are reasonable to ask, and I think war films should always be out there, but – I don't like the one-sided thing like it's cool to play tennis by yourself if you never like to lose but I mean don't you want to <laughs> challenge like I hate to say it like that
0: yeah again a lot of stuff going on there I think I mean I come from a military family I've got huge respect for the military um and I it's always so difficult when you're talk when you're talking about representations of war you have to bear in mind that these this was real experience for real people and people suffered and died and it was nasty, but I mean, one of my favorite writers on the Vietnam War is Tim O'Brien. And one of the things, he, he's got a, a whole chunk, which I'm not going to be able to remember exactly, but he talks about the experience of the war and he talks about it as a really complex experience. So he, he talks about it being nasty. He talks about it being traumatic, uh, but he also talks about it being fun. And I think what the the one particular quote is, war is nasty, war is fun. And I think that's something we forget in a lot of the way we talk about war. War is a hugely complex experience. And it's not just about trauma. It's interesting that you mentioned PTSD because that term becomes um, officially kind of acknowledged or into use during the Vietnam War. As an, an idea of what is happening to people um, in conflict. And it's it's no denying people do come out of war traumatized, but there's another side to it, and that's a lot of um veterans write about how actually they there's also this terrible sense of fun to that, to 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 fighting in this way, and exhilaration and complex emotions that war arouses. And I think to answer your question, we shouldn't say, no, we mustn't have films about the Vietnam War. But what we should be doing is saying, all right, well, that film is showing that particular dimension of conflict, but there is also other dimensions of conflict that we need to think about. And for me, thinking about the fact that war is fun is in a sense explains much more about war's attractions and why we keep fighting wars rather than necessarily thinking about war as trauma. We know that war is traumatic, but what we seem to have forgotten, and veterans throughout history have spoken about this, part of the experience of war, at least for some of the time, not all of the time, but at least for some of the time, is this mad exhilaration that happens on the battlefield um, that I think we should also be addressing. And as a society, we don't like to do that because it makes us uncomfortable. Film could do it, but they always shy away from it. It's always about the trauma, the trauma moments, this trauma narrative that comes out in the 1980s and the 1990s.
1: I, I have two examples. We're going to definitely talk about some propaganda in film again. Just give me one second with this one. But uh, it's I, I remember it's World War One or World War Two, but it's the Gold Star family. That creation of that star that you give with a flag rolled up for a family member who might have died overseas fighting for a battle, you give it to the mother I noticed that and immediately I just got disgust. Not that it's spitting on the honor of whoever, but I'm like, what is that? That She lost so much. And that's what you call a decree. And that's, and the people used to put it in their windows. And it used to be this sign of like, you had someone that sort of lost and people in the neighborhood would take care of you, which is great. It shows great community aspects of things. But what does the government do? Not really a whole lot. It's kind of that. And then they kind of walk away. And to me, I was like, Well, I mean that invention thing right there, if you're already on the fence of – is this – am I a communist because I'm representing or I'm disrepresenting my government or am I a patriot because I support and I double down on what my government does? It's like – it's not really either of those things. It's kind of like hitting it from a moral standpoint if you were put in that position. What would you do? And I love the government. I think they're needed, but I'm just like you got to define your labels and your rules, and we got to make some holy ground that you can't step on, and that is things with media that is – understanding the psychological impact if you're going to have one side it's going to be brainwashing in films then you have to let the other one also be able to speak and you can see this on the fbi's website but it's um Oliver Stone, Uh, his film JFK, Platoon, all those have files on there, and that's like that with the sixties and seventies. Anybody that was writing any type of literature, uh, a book, anything like that that's criticizing the government, the government wanted to know about it, and they considered you a problem when you did. And that is in the new JFK releases. Sorry if my examples are going to be more JFK related, but that's where I've been focusing. Uh, But Garrison's attempts to embarrass the agency. Garrison was an investigator that was trying to interview all these people, and he believed conspiracy. You don't want your government speaking to you like that. And it's like, well, we live in freedom of speech. We live in the democracy, whatever you want to call that. But that means that you should have both sides being able to speak as well, too, and only one side is being represented. And it doesn't mean like I'm anti-government and anything like that. It just means like we need to understand like certain checks and balances. And I would consider holy ground or Taking it off the table to be messed with is the American psyche or just psyche in general. And it's not just us. It's everywhere. I get that. Um, Radio Free Europe. I mean, that's that was a CIA thing for a while. But it, China has their own thing as well, too, that reports to their people and they get limited on news. But that's a very dangerous area. And we talk about things that happen in wars or things that happen in other countries like Latin America, the involvement. I mean, you have innocent people that are being caught between two crossroads, whether it's America stepping in or whether it's their own country trying to reverse the American propaganda out. And now who's the casualties are the people, the people that don't know what's going on and don't know what to listen to. And I think everyone can stand in that same boat of like innocent people not being you know, thrown off to the side or being in the mix of a giant heated argument but then we get, let's examine propaganda and film. One thing they couldn't touch, or one thing that they did get insight in that a lot of people don't know about, which is Pearl Harbor, the movie Pearl Harbor. I don't know if you've talked about this at all, or you've looked into this, but we had to go to Japan to request like certain things. We had to show them certain screenings of our film, and they told us what we could keep in and what we could cut out. We had strong guidelines on like, no, we're keeping that in there. But one easy example which is on the on the ship when i forgot who the lady's name is but when she's talking on the back of the ship there's a person that gets lit up by machine guns and japan was like cut that out and it never made the final cut and it was like it was something that was added on that wasn't like super huge but it was like something that was like i don't know to me it's like is that adding more detail to something or is it just creating how bad of a day that was or how bad they hurt us which has been a large amount of historical taught um reference point has been like japan caught us with our pants down and it was and what whether it's true or not but it was really demonized as like it was a sneak attack and we had to bring justice it's like all right well justice ain't dropping two bombs dude like justice is you know writing a letter and being like we're gonna international i don't know but that's i wouldn't be able to solve that answer i wouldn't want to be put in that position but to me that's like propaganda at its height point right there is like an influence into a film like that especially one that is shown to kids in schools whenever it's pearl harbor day i don't know if you've ever heard that example before yeah i watched it in ninth grade it was horrible it was three hours long
0: <laughs> you took which which pearl harbor movie are you talking the one with about ben affleck oh my god and that gets shown in schools that's yeah. extraordinary. I didn't know that. I word. saw that in
1: my okay. government class. I was not happy when I left, but we I think that was the one day we had a half day. So they're were like, we're just going to play a film. And they played Pearl Harbor. And I was like, oh, my God, I'll never watch that I... movie again, ever.
0: <laughs> I think I'd kind of be happier if you'd watched Tora, Tora, Torah. I'm not sure. Do you know about Torah Tora, Torah? Tora? Mm-hmm. So Tora 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 comes out in the 1970s, I can't remember exactly what year, but it's also about Pearl Harbor, but it's made with Japanese cooperation and it's a really it's a big screen epic so lots of big screen epic movies in the come out in the 70s about world war ii because it suits the big screen right this great spectacle of this it uses actual footage that's another interesting thing is the kind of recycling of actual footage into war movie um, which is something i'm fascinated by because then that goes back into the coverage of war but that's another story i'm getting distracted but tora 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 in some i mean in some ways, you might be falling asleep in at, at points because it's really about the bureaucratic stuff that's happening in the background in the states while um the attack is about to happen but it it shows both sides um kind of stumbling towards this moment and it's definitely not the sneak attack narrative is not really there in torah 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 and i I'm astounded that. I didn't know that about Pearl Harbor, I'd like to look into that, but certainly those kinds of negotiations between governments and the American, between government and the American film industry, um, especially if the film is getting cooperation from the military, is nothing, you know, that happens a lot. It doesn't always come down on the side of the government. Very often filmmakers push back against uh, suggested changes. So one of, off off the top of my head, um, The Longest Day, the famous Daryl Zanuck epi- epic about D-Day. Um, m- there was a moment that the American military wanted Zanuck to remove from the film, which is where, two american soldiers are approaching german soldiers who are saying please please in german they're saying bitter bitter and the the americans shoot them and so they kept that in so it's not always that stuff gets removed out that those ki- those kinds of negotiations can sometimes be that the filmmaker pushes back because thank god you know in many ways uh america is you don't necessarily have strict control of the media. It's a, it's a different thing to China or countries like that where there is real control over media. And to South Africa during apartheid era, South Africa, for example. So it's complex, but it's really interesting. And I think those moments where governments say, take that out and the filmmaker goes, yeah, okay. As you say that what sounds like a an odd moment to remove from a film like Pearl Harbor, um, I'd love to know why they did that, why they decided to take that out rather than keep it in. Whereas other moments, I mean, yeah, Pearl Harbor is problematic in some ways in terms of how it represents that that particular event.
1: The the newest Pearl Harbor movie, it's uh, my buddy Bob Herzberg's work on it. Um, It's called The Bureau on Screen. Um, And he talks about it. And that's I mean, there's scripts that get bought up. So it's it's a lot simpler than China or anything like that. Like China could just be like, you're not going to report that. And that's the end of discussion. For us, it's more like, you know what? We're going to let you use this equipment, but we want this added to the script. And if you don't do that, then we're going to pull the equipment out. And if you're making a Top Gun movie, you're kind of screwed. But I th- that's, that's a big thing for a lot. And I mean, back in the day, our relationship with Hollywood, the government had a huge looking for communists. I mean, they created the blacklist. They had scandals and things of that sort. So it's it's not as bad as that was. And maybe in some forms, it still might be when it comes to how we might be able to find better messages to in so into movies. But if you're watching some, and you see a guy shoot a bunch of unarmed people and you're now justifying to yourself okay they're enemies remember they're enemies they're en- when you're doing that that's your first question into a film of like maybe i should really try and look at this a little bit deeper of why i feel but it's like asking someone to keep a dream journal trying to have someone talk to their emotions what they feel in a film it's not going to happen it's kind of like i always felt when i watched war movies with my grandpa that i was just like why Steve I'd rather watch Steven Seagal break somebody's elbow um (laughs) my grandpa loved watching these films because you know he served and he would never say anything he never really wanted to talk about a lot of this stuff and it was like interesting to me it was like I don't want to bring it up and then it's like well are we going to actually and that's a big fear right there is imagine if I didn't end up researching or talking to scholars um who study film or study Vietnam war or study anything like that  … what I know the truth or what I know like how it's kind of like a back and forth teeter-totter of propaganda one way, propaganda another way if I – because I never asked him. So it was like he was there. He would be able to tell me the truth, but it was something you never talk to these people about their war experience, never talk to a veteran about their war experience. Well, how are you gonna know what went on over there besides getting what the history books might teach you, which is we got attacked at Pearl Harbor, then this happened. And it's such a dull version of it that I don't think it's really teaching the impact. And I hate to say it like that, but I have little nephews and I have little cousins, five years younger than me or something five or six hopefully I don't get that wrong and he's not listening but (laughs) they're very like the new generation what you would call woke but they're very like I'm like you don't know why you're mad though you're just mad because media told you this but what about like look at the balance? like you got to try and create a little bit of balance and I'm not saying it's not giving an excuse for the government but you need to kind of look at things that like it's not just us though it's Everybody, but we need to talk about what it does to us and what we can control, which is our government's involvement into films, media's involvement into our minds as well. So that's here. We can talk about that and we can work on that. And that's obviously might be an unpopular opinion, but you know, I think it's important because, like, for historical reasons, I'm doing a podcast, I'm trying to talk to people, and they're telling me, like, this is it. This is fake. This is fake. This is I'm like, what? This has been what I learned in 15 years of school. And you're telling me in one podcast, we're erasing all of it. And I mean, did you have those moments when you were researching, you sort of I mean, from the beginning of when you first got interested in just looking into film and talking about this? Did you ever think you would dive down kind of like a little bit of a rabbit hole in a sense of kind of learning a lot of these subliminal message type stuff, a lot of propaganda type stuff? Obviously, not just has to be in the United States, but it can be anywhere. But you kind of notice a little bit of the control. And like I said, it's a stereotype but when you really start laying out the facts and you kind of explain it, it goes less from the field of stereotype conspiracy to, OK, now it makes a lot more sense. I mean, 60s and 70s, the fear of communism was so high up there that if you start analyzing everything of like why were people afraid of communists so bad and why did we never want to learn about it Well, look at the propaganda they threw out back then. I mean, they think they had at one point somebody eating babies. It was like in a nursery where they – I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but there was an actual thing like that where they were saying the German soldiers are so bad and all this was so bad that they were eating babies. And it was like people were like, oh my god. And they just – to me now, I'm like looking at it. I'm like – but the way I was told that, I was in. I was like, wait, did they – and I was like, wait a minute. This is propaganda. And I had to kind of back away, but that's the powerful messaging of stuff because you have no – track in your head to know where this information or what source this is coming from, or where does this go? So when someone tells you, here's the facts, you take that at face value. And there was never a really a question about things until I think today's modern age.
0: I think uh, the baby eating thing is really fascinating mm. because that it keeps resurfacing. It even resurfaces in the Iraq War, um, in the first Gulf War. That apparently the Iraqis were were doing stuff to babies. So it's a, and I've I've seen some scholars actually track that through various conflicts. So it's it's a really so it's, it's a not lovely. It's horrific, but it's a it's a really neat kind of trope to get people right because oh my god babies and people are eating them that we have to go out and kill those guys so it uh, that's a it's a fascinating (laughs) kind of thing that recurs with 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 gives a whole
1: Um, new meaning to baby back ribs i'm sorry that
0: (laughs) oh my god yes okay (laughs) you had to go there i was
1: biting my (laughs) lip trying to keep it i was like you know what i'll just say it and whatever happens happens (laughs)
0: yeah i mean it's 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 yeah it gets you in the i think it grabs people um i I don't know whether I agree that people have only started questioning now, and again i mean in World War II right World War II coincides with the rise of mass media. And film at the time is thought of as a mass medium. Uh, Radio is a mass medium, even print the presses. So you've got these big things coming out that are reaching millions of people. Um, So there's this real fear about what they can do to the masses and how they can influence the masses. And there's also a sense in all the countries involved in World War II and in World War I actually, that that film is important. They don't know how, but film is important in terms of getting ideological messages across. But at the same time, again, if you start to dig into what's happening in those countries, and there have been some studies that have done this, even if you are living in a country where the media is controlled, like Japan during World War II, Germany during World War II, China now, people don't necessarily it, it, Not everyone accepts those messages in the same way, which is why I don't necessarily agree with you. I mean, my own experience in South Africa, for example, there's a point where I was going, hang on a sec," and you you're talking rubbish when I started watching the news. But it took me a while to get there. Um, but I think now we, we're almost facing the opposite problem in that there is so much information coming from so many sources, it's hard to know who, what to trust and where, where the information is that we should be trusting. So I, I think the answer to one of the questions you asked earlier is not necessarily about, I mean, obvi- about media controls or about holding journalists responsible, although we should, it's actually about teaching people to be much more media literate in exactly the way you're describing, in the fact that you reach out to people and talk to people about things that are interesting you. We can do that in our daily lives in many ways and to interrogate stuff, not just to take it at at face value. I mean, generally, if, if, if my students, and this happens sometimes, they'll come out saying, I'm never gonna trust the photograph again. I'm like, my work here is done because actually you should be thinking about everything how is it coming to you why is it coming to you in that form what is it saying to you who's speaking for whom and why a really important question to be asking so we should be teaching people to do that which is why when people think that media studies or film studies is a light fluffy discipline drives me insane because this is the only way we understand the world around us is through understanding the media around us.
1: I'm not going to lie. Through some of my film discussions, we've talked about superheroes and I've enjoyed those very much. Uh, But I'm also enjoying this. Superheroes (laughs) are important for sure. (laughs) But I mean, we could talk that analyze comics. I mean, comics with uh, Captain America fighting the Nazis. I mean, immediately he's just every kid like we're going to beat up a Nazi when we find him. And I'm like, well, so now you're supplying a whole line of new troops for you whenever, you know, however long this lasts. Um, But you mentioned about photographs, never trusting a photograph. Can you take me into what do you mean by that? Like, Because, I mean, th- this is a long-standing thing, but influencing photo or video to influence a testimony or something like that, it's in- it's like influencing it with the truth. Like, okay, maybe you don't recall because memory is a little shaky. Here's the video. And that's obviously – it's going to be a little personal question, but the JFK assassination, that manipulation of photographs. That's
0: the prude film, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I don't know when that starts and what the technology is, but if I have the guy who took the photograph saying that those aren't the photographs that they're showing you, the ones I take that they're telling me I took, those aren't my camera. I had a different camera. When he says that, I'm like, what do we do? Do we trust them or do we just – you know, I don't know how they edit a film. Do they get in the black room with the little glasses and get down. I don't know, but I mean we do it with ease now. With my phone, I can Photoshop my face on Fabio's body, and I've done it multiple times. But I'm just saying, like, it's so easy. It's all of our pockets. It doesn't sound crazy. Just like wiretapping back then sounded insane. And then now they we just let them do it because who cares? I mean, I get an advertisement for half the things we're going to be ended up talking about here. So, bam. So, I mean, <laughs> when did the photo manipulation start? Did they have the technologies in the 60s and 70s? Is it, is it as simple as going over to Vietnam or going over to a war zone and then just of moving the camera so it cuts off the guy's legs to where it's not like you don't know his legs are blown off but they're there i'm just going to show you a happier picture see he's smiling and it's like no he's really screaming but he's mid scream grinding his teeth down to his other teeth
0: i think a great example of of and again it's, it's a little bit more complex than than faking photos i think one of the clearest ways of putting it is that the line between fact and fiction in audiovisual media both photographs and in moving pictures and later in 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 film etc with sound the line between fact and fiction has always been blurred right from its earliest history so if you go back to the earliest wars that were photographed um take um take the american civil war for example I, it, we can talk about the war in the crimea as well but but let's take the american civil war so you have um Alexander Gardner's ph- photograph of a sharpshooter, right? There are two versions of this. One in which the um guy's lying dead, the other is where he's been he's he's in a slightly more photogenic pose. And people go backwards and forwards. I mean, there are huge debates about the photos faked. It's why it, it it's nonsense. But in actual fact, at the time so ideas of journalistic integrity that we have now didn't exist then photography is a very new medium it's linked to film there's this idea that things should uh, not linked not linked to film linked to painting there's the idea that things should have an aesthetic composition so the body is moved to make it more aesthetically pleasing is one is one theory behind that and that So even if we go all the way back there, there's a sense of what we see on camera isn't necessarily what is the, the essential truth of war, whatever that might be. It's very, that that's a very vague term to think about, the truth of war, but we have this weird kind of faith in photography and visual media that somehow it has a special relationship to what it's representing and that if we see it it must have happened so we keep getting shocked when that's not the case but it's even more complicated than that i mean if you i don't i don't know about american football so much because i don't know how that works but if you think of things like var in um various sports like tennis or rugby for example they will show the same incident from different angles to try and get a sense of what happened and sometimes you just can't, you just can't. So how much more is that possible? How much more is that complicated when we have a, a moment in conflict or a moment that happens out of the blue like the Kennedy assassination where something is getting um, just just captured by accident almost. And that film has been dissected from so many different perspectives and so many different um, ideological positions. And we still, it's still difficult to know what what it was really about. So it's not even about fakery. It's about actually the, the relationship between a, a camera and what is happening in front of a camera um, is not always what we think it is, and what makes it onto film, we might think it's going to give us the truth of something, and we we think of it as evidence, right? We use it in court as evidence, but very often it's it's it, it's open to a huge range of interpretations. So it's it's even more complicated than just fakery. But yeah, in in terms of thinking about what what you said, it goes back all the way to the very start of those technologies, and the understanding of what cameras do and how they capture reality. I mean, we use that term, right? We capture the shot. Also, by the way, related to technologies of shooting, but that's another story. We capture the shots as if we've captured a moment of reality. That's not what we do in 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 actual fact. What we're doing is we we're capturing a moment through a technology that is in a particular place being used by a person with a particular idea of what they're doing and all of that influences what we see on the screen or in a photograph
1: it's funny um when people mention the Zapruder film I just bring up the point did you know there's 12 other videos that were filming in Dealey Plaza that day when Kennedy was killed and not a lot of people know that they just go what it's like I thought that. it's like the president's coming to town of course people are of course filming the guy on the back of the car behind him was filming but his film died when the assassination happened and then i mean that's understandable he was filming for a long time but then there's gail nicks film and she's suing the cia right now because uh her that's her grandfather's film and they they took it from her and they claim the rights to it and they have not there's videos of it you can find on youtube but they won't let her have it um uh, there's another guy that was filming i think it's the i don't want to say weissman film but there's another film that was taken FBI agent took the camera took the film right out of the camera and that's his testimony and that's statements from other witnesses as well too and that wasn't released until like 20 years later I mean he doesn't have anything though is the thing is like there's nothing important on there it was just like maybe covering everything trying to figure out what happened like I said rationally explaining that rather than doing that but photographs I mean that's the thing is manipulating taking a face and putting it on another face I mean When you're doing that and you're influencing, what you would call like showing video to influence memory, because people's memories can change. I'm like, yeah, but if you edit it and you do that yourself, that's very difficult because now they're gonna risk they're gonna misremember because you showed them something that is fake. It's like if me and you did this podcast. Now this these come out like usually two weeks after we record. I could edit and splice, do whatever I want. I'm not going to. I'm just saying I could, (laughs) but I I, I would never do that. Of course you could. Yeah, of course you could. But that influences what you're not going to really remember. You remember certain points about the moment, but you're not going to remember exactly everything. That that's, like so, that's so dangerous where I'm like, how do we stop that from happening? And there is something interesting that you mentioned about photographs, but it is the RFK assassination. Did you notice Life Magazine on their cover, what they cropped out of the original image was the clip-on tie that was on the floor beside RFK? They took it out. Now, I don't know about media in any other country, but I know about media here. And there's one on there's one rule, really, which is you do not mess with a person's photograph. You do not do anything with that sort. And they've been breaking that for the longest time. There's photos of the Kennedy assassination where media reporters are taking pictures of people as they're on the ground because shots are being fired where I'm like. What is happening is anybody just I would be ducking down no matter if I had a camera. I'd be shooting like over the ledge, like trying to snip pictures while I'm running. But these that's their that was their thing of like you keep the cameras rolling 24 seven. And a lot of people commit to this aspect of things. But then it makes me question, well, if there's this rule of not don't mess with a photograph, why are you intentionally doing that? Now, you can say that. It's a clip-on tie. They didn't want to embarrass the name of RFK that he had a clip-on tie. It's so small. I don't think anybody cares about that. I don't think everybody's gonna be stuck on the busboy's face is holding them. But what? Why would you just take the clip off the clip-on tie out of the mix? Like it, to me, it's like you want to have the whole photograph in its entirety. It's more historical value in that rather than just doing something and then putting your little brand logo in the corner of it. Like I don't know if you've ever heard about the RFK thing, but you can look those photos up. It's it's just to me, it's just like that's the weirdest thing to crop out. Where it's like you could have picked anything, you could have colorized it if you wanted to, but they were like, no, we're just gonna take that clip on tie that's a foot away from them and make sure that doesn't pop up in the corner or anything because it might damage the barcode that we put at the bottom.
0: Yeah, I think there's. <laughs> uh, I mean, those decisions also get made for a, a, lot, a raft of different reasons. I just know that I need to have a look at that, but I think also that I and my memory could be faulty on this, funnily enough, for are talking about memory, but I do remember some discussion of, again, the Napalm Girl photograph being cropped in some newspapers so that, because there's an American soldier on the side, so that those soldiers were cut out. And that just creates a different feel to the photograph because that contrast of the soldiers to the children is really startling and um is part of the power of the photograph so the decision to crop that out is always i think i think you're right that we should be questioning and it's like sometimes it's it, it can be as innocent as well we need to put the text there so we need space in well, you know, that. so in, photo, in print media. So yeah, that, that happens. But we need to be thinking about what that does to our understanding, our reading of that, those photographs for sure. So yeah, it's not even necessarily about fakery. And I think one of the interesting things you, you're bringing up is the way in which in the digital world um, control over those kinds of images images have always been ma- malleable we've always been able to manipulate them but now it's so easy as you said you you and i can do it you can do it to this um i could do it to this i could put a different version on youtube if if i you know wanted to so there's a sense that things are a lot there's a lot less control over images in some ways and i, I I think some of the stuff is, is outright terrifying in terms of the level of the way in which we can now manipulate images in, 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 is, is downright terrifying.
1: When you said the napalm girl had crop out, but it was like two, maybe two soldiers possibly standing on the side that does play a different factor. Cause you have to kind of look at like what I mentioned about the gold star family. Um, when they videotaped the guy handing the, wife or the mother who lost whoever the flag and then they do a salute and all that if you just analyze like there's a guy right now who decided this has to be the perfect angle for a low shot where the flag is going to go right over the can. So someone had to think what would be the best angle to capture this? What time do we call her to do this filming thing so we can put it on television? And I'm like, I hope other people see that as well too. Cause I feel like a lot of people don't like, they just see the moment or what their eyes are being shown. And I'm like, if you really analyze this, like, cause I, I not just made one film. I've made a couple and I've taken film studies stuff in school. It was a big interest of mine. I liked recreating scenes and stuff. Uh, But if you really look at like how much work, work goes into producing one of those things, and then you see the final version, you kind of notice it every time you watch a film now or anytime I watch a news piece, like somebody crying in front of a house that's burned down. I'm like, either you decided this was the best time to turn on your camera to capture this person's pain, or you're having this person recreate something and it doesn't always need to be conspiratorial but there's a lot of like it'll be really good and really sink the message in if we can do this and a lot of times if you give them money they'll probably end up doing something like that it doesn't need to be fake it doesn't need to be conspiracy conspiracy it's just the mindsets of like this is a direction that we've been going in for a long time where where you would find like that sounds horrible it's like well we've been this isn't just like This one person decided, hey, we're going to do this. This has been years and years and years of slowly pushing that barrier of what we can show you on the media, Vietnam War, showing really horrible images to the public. Now we've gotten to the point where... That's our daily thing. I could watch a person getting their head cut off and it's like, eh, whatever, I'm going to go eat breakfast. Uh, but then there's also the factor of now we can manipulate those photos to kind of show maybe whatever, if you want to be critical of the government or if you want to be pro government, you just crop a soldier out. And what do the what do the public want? Does the public just want an answer that satisfies them? Are we OK with that? I mean, like I said, there's got to be holy ground on what we talk about. I think like um history, historical value, I think should just. I would leave the fantasy parts out of that, mostly what, I mean, unless you got really good research or let it all go up there, but you have to have both. You can't just have a one-sided thing, but journalism is an area I'd like to get into, but good God, not after the stories I've heard. Holy crap. The amount of pressure, I would be taking a Xanax every two minutes.
0: Some of them do. So yeah, especially war correspondents. I I think the other thing that and, in terms of what you said about the public, I think that's something we haven't spoken about, is that actually also some of this needs to be there's something awful about it being marketable. So especially in in the states where a lot of television gets its money from advertising, the so you've got this idea of almost this this horrible stuff becoming a commodity. A valuable commodity for news, a valuable commodity for um, photo magazines. Life made its its life came to the fore because of of World War II in particular. So it, it's almost. I, I think that's when we need to. It's not just about we can watch someone's head get chopped off and go and have breakfast, which I think is true a lot of the time. But now it's also, we want, there's a sense of, well, we need to produce these images in order to to get it to sell. So if we do get the person to cry in front of their burning house, rather than just stand watching it, that packs more of a, that's more of a televisual moment than if they just stand watching it. So I think these are, are, this is also part of the issue is that hunger for worse stuff that hunger for the spectacular that hunger for the emotional the large emotional responses um yeah which is uh, i don't know where that leaves us i don't know if we've got worse as time has gone on i think in some ways i definitely see it in my students there's a, a real hardening towards horror in, 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 in terms of what they're watching. And by horror, I mean graphic images or, or really awful stuff. There can be, there's a hardening in it. And I, I think that's, that's dangerous. I don't think it's necessarily that we're all becoming desensitized, but I think we're just becoming used to it in a way, which we should never have become used to it. We should never have become used to seeing people's heads getting chopped off and then going to have breakfast.
1: I, I think it's that. And I also think it's not being able to decipher fact from fiction. Yeah. Um, in particular, like when you see something and you just it's it's so part of your everyday life where like at this point you're just like, OK, that's just another thing. and You just kind of it could be a complete bunk story could be completely wrong. And then even then, I really don't trust fact checkers a lot of the times either. There's a couple times that I mean, well-respected newspapers have reported on something and then they've been labeled like misinformation like and then that story becomes true or something like that i forgot i had a good example i lost it uh (laughs) don't blame me for it but i mean it's it's just like i mean do we have that that integrity aspect but if we get into like the public's reception of things i mean we have a generation not a little bit of my generation but generation younger that you know they get their news from independent sources as well too but I'm just happy in one aspect with the new news, I would say, which is the fact that they report on the story, but they blame the other side, which I don't like. That would be my cutoff line. I'm just happy the information's getting out there. Like that's the craziest thing to me. and I don't need to. Obviously, we don't have to get into the more modern day type stuff, but at least something's being spoken is the first time in 60 years I ever heard anybody talk about um, the Kennedy assassination that wasn't pro the Warren Commission aspect of things. And that was Tucker Carlson. And I don't like Tucker Carlson. Um, My biggest fear when that happened was, oh, no, it's going to be a right wing conspiracy theory as soon as he said it. But I had been talking about what he had mentioned so many times on the show because I have the documents to back it up. And when he said it, I was like, I hope people are going to receive this in the correct way. And obviously it went in two different directions of things. But I go, we got a little bit like kind of move past that. Like this is, there's historical events that we, I feel like we need the full circle picture to, and there's a reason why they have significance. I mean, we have, when I say people become, I guess, deciphering fantasy and fiction or real or whatever, it's the same aspect, with historical events. Why does no one care about history anymore? It's because they don't have an incentive to care. And it's because you have we haven't shown them why they need to. They think that they know it all. I thought I knew it all. I don't know anything. I will be the first to admit that. But when I'm talking to so many different people that have different perspectives on things, and it kind of helps me keep balanced. But then I hear something about certain war soldiers or something like that using marijuana and these things called go pills during the Vietnam war, which were like amphetamines. I'm like, where was my hit? I would have got straight A's. I swear to <laughs> you, it didn't happen uh, <laughs> because my teacher was more than happy to show Forrest Gump and think this is a great way to learn about Vietnam. So now every time I think of Vietnam, I think <laughs> him running through the forest, screaming Bubba. It's not real, but it's something where it's like, I think people just need to be shown that there is something that they're not getting and it's kind of more of a biased viewpoint and let's try and show them both ends of the spectrum, but you can do that balanced. I feel like that's the biggest fear of why that will never happen is because it's not going to ever be balanced. And look, that leads into a whole lot of difficulties we're having now with discussions of what should be taught to children. In my opinion, I'm like, look, there's gotta be an age range. Um, I don't know if six is good to show them the Vietnam War. I would probably wait a little bit, maybe seven or eight. <laughs> but there are some like real importance of like, what are we teaching in our education systems? And, you know, parents, obviously that's their right as well, too. I mean, but I also think like it's good to give them everything like for me. And I don't have kids, but you want to I mean, you can speak probably from a teacher's standpoint, but kids want to know things that are going to help them in life. Everyone says it. I'm not going to need this type of trigonometry because I'm just want to balance a checkbook or something. That's true. But also if you teach them the history and what they can just question at no time in our life through our education systems was questioning a bad thing. And and now in the real world where you go out and trying to be an adult, um, it seems like questions are the worst possible thing you could ever ask because now people go, are you on my side or not? And it's like, Well, that's not what that means. And now we have kids, and you probably come across this with your students, that are interested in learning 100%, or they're tuned out. And you're going to have those two sides. But I think the people that are tuned outers, because they- I don't know if it's sensing bs um i i use that as my excuse for not paying attention (laughs) but that is a that is a real truth because i think they have to learn it in their form and if you kind of are speaking down sometimes and if you're kind of it's like it turns into a lecture a lot of times people just tune out but they can get interested in the information it's just trying to show them why they should care and i think we're seeing some of that but again it's the same point in the beginning about people becoming numb to half this stuff i mean last week is hard to get people to care and trying me trying to get someone interested in 60 years ago is like good god um but i think it's like media i mean everyone talks about it on twitter or something like that but i don't like uh elon musk and all those people doing the way that they do it because they're also doing the same thing i mean elon musk goes come back for day two to see the rest of twitter files released and i'm like dude just release it all if you really care about people like i mean you don't need to turn it into a show not every single thing in the world needs to be a show 24 7 you can just give it to us and you know if we accept it we accept it if we don't we don't
0: yeah yeah i mean I, history for me is so important because i i because to me it tells it helps me understand why things are the way they are now and without that understanding i I can't function so for me, I just feel that it how how do people function without knowing um why without knowing why, for example, we went into World War two or what World War two was about or or what what it is meant, or you know why the the Vietnam War happened and why that's what is that done to the world and so and how that connects with stuff that's happening now I mean you just you need that background otherwise it's the same as as us as individuals without our own memories and our own sense of our own past we don't understand who we are and I think it's true of nations as well if you don't understand how your nation has operated in all its with all its warts warts and all you you don't really understand who you are in the world today and that it's so important I, I get I get blown away by what people don't know when they come into my, my, my lectures, because, and I I don't don't mean my, 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 I mean, my students are intelligent people, but the, what doesn't get taught anymore is, is alarming to me.
1: Do you, when you go and try and maybe look up something or you hear something in the news today, do you ever have different sources that you kind of check through? Like what's, what's your process when you see an article? Like I have certain steps in my head that kind of, as soon as I see something, I go click it, look into it a little bit try and find – and I usually try and dissect the first couple paragraphs, and I take sentences and seeing certain words like in my brain when I'm reading it, it starts to seem like lawyer speak, and I go, this might be BS. And then I kind of try and Google certain sentences and see if they, there's something that has been written somewhere else or if there's – so I try and check multiple sources. I mean do you have a checklist? I mean I feel like with news, if you even watch the news, you're probably analyzing every little bit of it. I I do that with just with films. I do that with everything.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a pain to live with because I do spend my entire. Uh, my husband says I've completely spoiled watching movies for him because I will go rah, This is this isn't working, and I I spend a lot of my time shouting at television news, so I don't always watch it. But yeah, I think the process that you've described is, is what we should all be doing. I think it uh, and multiple sources and certain trusted sources. I think there are some sources. Obviously, no news outlet is perfect, but if something has been said across multiple uh, in multiple ways across multiple sources, there's ge- you generally get a sense of all right. Well, this is this is what is happening. Um, even if you think about the the earthquakes recently in Turkey, I think just getting that through a traditional news news outlet and then branching into finding out in other ways is the way we should all be handling news and what's going on in the world at the moment because because it's part of being for me it's part of being a responsible citizen and I don't mean uh, obedient to the government when I say citizen I mean citizenship in being responsible to the people around us and to the world we live in and to the society we operate in we have a responsibility to keep ourselves informed and to understand what's going on Do
1: you have an example of a movie that you've just been disgusted with because you just couldn't watch it because it was like like for me it's I, I it's there's a movie called the judas and the black messiah i don't know if you've ever heard about it it's about fred hampton's life if you know what fred hampton the he's a i don't know if you know who he is but he's a He's a, he's a young activist. He was part of the Black Panther Party, all about Comantel Pro. A bunch of that type of stuff happened to him. Um, he was killed at 21, 126 shots fired into his house. Um, I actually posted an episode. It's, I think it's 1342. It's with two people who have done extensive research into that guy's life. But you watch the film. I mean it does not des- depict a 21-year-old the guy who played him's like 35 has a full on like beard and Fred Hampton had a little bit of one but as much as I do I guess but you know he but it really kind of takes the innocence of like the kids age out of the scenario and then like doesn't show any of like the corruption with Chicago police um and a bunch of stuff with j edgar hoover and the COINTEL Hell program this was like they have guns and they're pointing them out at each other 24 7 and it was like this really tensed up area which eventually did happen with the black panthers but not around fred hamptons there's different organizations and everything but to me i had to turn it off after like an hour and i sat through it for an hour and i shouldn't have it. and i gave them crap because they recommended it for me to watch and i was like <laughs> why would you say that they're like but did you notice how fake it was i was like Tell me that before going into it. You said, watch this movie on Fred Hampton. (laughs) And I was like, oh, most of the time, like, did these guys lie to me? But you watch it. And then it's just like, this was like a great way of saying the government, like, you don't feel mad at the government. You don't feel mad at Fred Hampton. You're just kind of like, had to be done. And that's not how you should feel about that. So historical accuracy in that part. Was a little bit disturbing that turned me away from that film. I didn't know if you had one for you that was a uh, turned you either away because you knew the real events to it.
0: As you're talking, I'm trying to desperately to. I know there have been, and I can't offhand think of one. I might think of one as we go on. I mean, I think there are. There have been.
1: Forrest Gump. Say it. Say Forrest Gump.
0: do you know i don't mind forrest gump but i don't necessarily see it as a i'd be shocked if if anyone was using that as right this is the history of the u.s in in five easy
1: blame my history teachers names mr mcgackie
0: i suppose pearl harbor didn't have me shouting at the screen but certainly pearl harbor is problematic i think i can think of problematic films so films that even Saving Private Ryan, right, which is beautiful in many levels, and I, the first time I saw it, I remember being really emotionally affected by it. But the deeper you go into Saving Private Ryan, the more it becomes problematic. So I think it's it it's the yeah it's the problematic ones that get me, where I'm like, oh man, this is so good, but why is it so problematic? Um, and I, I suppose, um, actually, I didn't even watch this because it pissed me off so much, but the, um, I can't remember the name of it, but it it was the one about the Enigma machine and it had basically Americans solving the, cracking the code for the Enigma machine in World War Two. It's U571, U- I think, or something along those lines.
1: That's not what I was thinking. I was thinking Da Vinci Code with her. Uh, yeah, no, Tom I Hanks. couldn't
0: even watch it. I could not watch it because the Enigma code was cracked by amazing, mostly women, amazing women working here at Bletchley Park. And that that history was just not just I mean, I don't I think one of the tricky things is I think we have to remember that all history, all forms of history, even written history, is are representations of the past and in representing the past they're doing that according to certain conventions and certain codes, some of which are more trustworthy than others so i'm i'm not I'm not um wedded to the idea of history with a capital h, but at the same time, when you get a film that completely distracts from the amazing work that would, that was done by people in order to crack the enigma code and turns it into a a story that is just completely untrue that I I couldn't even engage with that I have to say I I just I couldn't Can I so that might be one example
1: can I ask what your thoughts are on JFK
0: I don't know enough about JFK to weigh in on this this history I I from a from the the way in which I approach things I'm interested in, I'm interested in the way it has rippled out and continues to ripple out, not just as an event, but as a moment in which everything, including the way in which that event was caught on film, um, is debated. I think there's something really interesting about that. I'm not necessarily interested in the um, in the conspiracies around it, but I'm interested in the fact that it generated conspiracies and the way in which media played a role in that. So the Zapruder film is sometimes analyzed in one way, it's sometimes analyzed in another. It is possibly one of the most analyzed pieces of films ever. And in what you're saying about, obviously other people had cameras then and how that just doesn't bubble up into, into, into public access or how that has been controlled. But I don't have enough knowledge about it to comment, to feel comfortable about commenting on it one way or the other.
1: Just real quick. The Oliver Stone think... one, the Oliver Stone film. Oh, the film. Yes, yes, yes. Not the actual Zapruder film. That's not a JFK film. That's just a Zapruder film. Okay. Uh, but the actual movie Sorry, with Oliver, Oliver Stone.
0: I I think Stone is really... Again, I'm almost more interested in the responses to Stone's work. So some of the documentaries he's done as well have caused huge outcry, just in terms of, because he pushes buttons. So I I think that, I find that interesting. Um, And in terms of what you're thinking about, in terms of control over media, Stone pushes back at that in many ways and pisses people off and outrages people. But, and I think he does stuff that Again, in terms of the power of the media, there's um, a scholar called Thomas Alsace who talks about um, media as discursive events, kind of film as discursive events, kind of having the American Sniper as one of these. So one of these films that kind of lands in in the world and creates this huge uh, debate that, that spreads out into all levels of society, including sometimes all the way up to government. So I'm interested in what Stone does from that perspective, because a lot of what he does can be those moments that just prompt debate or open up things in different ways.
1: I, uh, the JFK film, I have like a complicated relationship with. It's, I've never seen it, um, but I've seen bits, like pieces, like a scene seen movies, like maybe two scenes out of the whole thing. I just didn't want to watch it because um, I'm in the middle of something. So I didn't want to watch that and then pop- possibly. So there are things where I'm like, he added fantasy to it, and I wasn't very – I mean I get it, but if you're making a film, that's why he calls it a film. But the most important thing is the significant impact of the ending where he left a message saying, write your congressman, and that established the Assassination Records Review Board about declassifying Discursive all the documents. events,
0: right? Yeah.
1: That is so important to historical whatever, where you people that disagree with Oliver Stone or don't like the guy, give him credit for that, because that is, I mean, that's the goal for any director or anyone who's making something that has a historical point to it is for a giant something afterwards. And that is like, I mean, that is the ultimatum, the whole thing right there, where it's this amazing scenario. So, I mean, on that basis, that movie, to me, I'm like, I'll have to watch it at some point, but that was one of the great things for my generation. of I mean, we don't know those documents could still be sealed for however long. I mean, they're still keeping Jackie Kennedy's dress till 2100, no, 2183. So I don't know why, but I mean, whatever. Uh, but that's that's a historical value where it's like it's the people that you got to really think about. I think you kind of see that when sometimes like I analyze a film, I kind of look at like, first of all, how would this track in today's society? A lot of my films would not stand uh big lebowski my all-time favorite is definitely not going <laughs> to hit that record at all uh but there's a lot of things where it's like what would people view at this like if you're showing new eyes to it are people going to receive it the same way you're receiving it and you know i've been getting way interested into documentaries as of recently but everything's murder now i can't stand it like everything is true crime blood got a shot ch- jeffrey Don, Dah- the Dahmer show Attracted so much controversy, which is like, I don't know why people are obsessed with serial killers. I blame The Walking Dead and Mad Men and all those shows that came out.
0: <laughs> yeah, I happen to love The Walking Dead up, up to a point. But I think it, it's a great point because actually, what it shows is we don't, we have, I think people tend to hive off different kinds of media into different sections. When I say people, I think academics do it, certainly. And even in the popular press, it happens. But in actual fact, we live in a complex media environment and we get our information from all kinds of different places. So we shouldn't be discounting um, understanding how The Walking Dead works in order to understand maybe the way in which we're thinking about the end of the world. Okay, that's a bit of a stretch. But I, I think the... It, it goes to show that it's not just the big historian who writes an important and controversial book on JFK, who's important. And it's not only the people who do written history, who own the right to represent that history. You have a filmmaker like Oliver Stone who can make a film about that moment and create a real reaction and a real response. And that shows that history is not it's not owned by academic historians. I, I have a feeling that I am now going to have a bunch of academic historians after me because of that statement, but it it it's not owned by academic historians history is is a movable feast that we're all participating in, and we we should all take responsibility for, which I think is is your point that we should. We should take responsibility for the way in which we interact with these stories, and even in your case, in producing them.
1: Well, Deborah, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. I know we kind of ranged the board in the conversation there, but I appreciate it because that's what my show's about. Um, Is there a place where people can find any of your links, if you have a website, any social media links, anything like that you'd like to promote?
0: I've got university, uh, all of my links are generally connected to the university, so um, I can send you those if you like, or uh, point, if you look at the University of Exeter, and my name, they'll come up, um, and all my work is on there, all the stuff that I do is on there, so yeah, I don't have a separate web- website.
1: Well, I'm going to link all your links in the description, I appreciate the time, and thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.